0: Welcome to Beyond
1: Year Zero, a podcast about Cambodia then and now. In this podcast, I attempt to explore Cambodia's dark and troubled past and to investigate how it has affected the country's complex and dynamic present. And today, I'm going to be talking about gender and women's rights. On the 17th, 1975, the Khmer Rouge drew to a close their five-year civil war by taking the capital, Phnom Penh, and so instigating their reign of terror, often referred to as the Pol Pot regime. During this time, the population was separated into distinct revolutionary classes based on political and economic attributes, such as when you had joined the revolution and what occupation you had before the regime. Gender supposedly had no relevance to your social class, and as a result, many women earned positions of power from the village and district level right up to the Standing Committee, the highest political authority within the Khmer Rouge state. In their propaganda, the Khmer Rouge claimed to have emancipated women, and the state constitution declared men and women as equals. This wasn't particularly new. After all, King Sanuk's cabinet had also included a minority of women. Nor did it signal the beginning of a utopia of gender equality. Under the Khmer Rouge, sexual and gender-based violence was rife, with rape, sexual torture, and execution of women widely reported. In particular, forced marriages were a hallmark of the regime. In order to meet its target to increase the population to some 15 or 20 million over the next 10 years, the regime forced more than 250,000 couples to marry, often ensuring these marriages were consummated under duress, or the threat of execution. People were married in mass ceremonies of up to 80 couples with the ceremony consisting of little more than swearing allegiance to the regime, ceremonies which were concluded with a revolutionary handshake rather than a kiss, since love and emotional fealty were only permissible and owed to the regime. The history of these so-called red weddings has left a complex and difficult legacy for the survivors, whilst also contributing to a patriarchal and highly gendered cultural society in modern-day Cambodia. I wanted to explore how these issues have affected women and men in Cambodia and to ask what the study of a difficult and unique past can teach us about gender and women's rights today. To explore these issues, I put the feelers out and the first person to get back to me was Tim Menea, Executive Director of Kdei Karuna, an organisation which facilitates dialogue and reconciliation projects between former victims and perpetrators of the regime. I started by asking him why these dialogue projects were needed and how they relate to the work of the Khmer Rouge War Crimes Tribunal, which is also known as the ECCC or the ECCC.
2: If you look at the court objective or we can say like a a goal is to bring like justice and and reconciliation yeah I think if it we think about like a national levels uh yes um the itrc can uh accomplish that with the national levels with but uh, from the um the local level uh, it's hard because it's too big mm. yeah the the goal of ECC is to Big, so there's need uh, uh, some other mechanism or some other uh, intervention, you know, um, uh, to support, like uh, to supplement to that. Mm-hmm. So our work, uh, it's it, it's not something that we we criticize uh, about the court, but it's about something that we try to complement to what uh, the court have done and what's something left that we can do, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, for the, uh, uh, the victims. That's why we, we most fo- focus a lot on the, the local levels and to understand about what t- uh, justice means to or reconciliation mean to those people because the concept is uh, too broad.
1: One of the outreach programs in the court, as I understand it, is connected with is is Pekasla. Is that connected with the court? Yep. Maybe you could tell me a little bit more about that. Pakasla is
2: one of uh, a project that uh, uh, we all, the four organization that uh, um, join and proposed um, to the ECC on the case of Autosastal, especially on the forced marriage mm. and uh, gender-based violence during the Khmer
1: Why is it important to focus specifically on gender-based violence?
2: see um, uh, gender equality in, in the society, especially in in Cambodia, you know, um uh even we we work with the past but um our purpose is um uh, one to want uh, the people you know um to reflect on how the society today uh behave to the gender issue yes and also um, recognize the, the victim suffering. Uh, yeah, because uh, even the past, but the survivor is still uh, living right now. And also um, uh, they uh, want to, um, to bring or to speak out about uh, uh, this topic. So it is important um, uh, for young generation uh, to learn about what happened in the past and reflect to ourselves what can we do to respond to um, um, the victim and also what can we do as a young generation uh, to behave to to the uh, the gender uh, equality or gender issue in um today's society mm-hmm. yeah so this is what we want we 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 want to um, to make change you know mm-hmm. yeah want the youth to see to open because uh, it's in our culture um not uh, many people um talk about this Mm. Especially like uh, violence,
1: sexual violence or gender-based violence, yeah. So where, where are we at in, in Cambodia in terms of gender rights today, do you think? We still need to, um, to work and,
2: and especially uh, 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 to provide uh, uh, more understanding about the concept of gender rights to the young people, yes, young generation and uh, to increase the um, the participation especially in the the women's uh, yes in 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 into um, the development into the um, uh, others you know issue yeah. Mm-hmm. Because um as we see, uh, uh, some some people still think have a perception uh, uh, differently between men and women, you know, and also um, uh, in our society, also not really, you know, uh, value to to um, the others like transgender or some others, yes. So it's quite new for them. Mm. So we need to open the, uh, the discussion because we are in a modern society and, and uh, something uh, has developed and changed a lot. And, but some people still um, uh, believe in the old p- uh, perspective uh, For men, powers and women's, uh, and in, and exclude uh, the others. So we want uh, them to understand uh, why uh, uh, the violence happens. Yeah. So and what's the difference uh, between uh, 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 men and women's? Yes. Uh, in our society.
1: In 2013, a large scale UN study on men and violence in Asia and the Pacific found that one in four women in Cambodia said they had experienced intimate partner violence, that is, physical, sexual, or psychological harm, at least once. The same study found that among men aged 18 to 49, one in every five men interviewed admitted raping a woman at least once, either within or outside a relationship. With such high levels of violence persisting in the present, I wanted to understand how studying violence in the past could possibly help to reduce violence against women and girls in Cambodia today.
2: Uh, violence still happening in right now, uh, today's society. Yes, we see and uh, also rape, kills. Yeah, the the prevalence of this is quite high. Mm. Yeah, in, in in our society today and so why is it why is it happen yeah so from talking about the past just let uh, uh, the participant to discuss about what today what's other issue what other violence happen today and then they can say oh yes a lot of Women's uh, were killed and raped. Yes. So they try to understand and and first we want the especially young people, you know, yeah, to understand about this and and even we we can we hardly say that the violence is impact or affect uh, from the past. Mm. We hardly say that because we don't have any proof of that, but at least we want um, uh, to we we bring the topic of the past as the the doors mm. to open the discussion in today's society so in the exhibition of the Bukasla, um we brought uh many type of story so when we interview the, the victims, um, we have many times story. The victim who still living together, the, the family who, who forced marriage still living together, but still having violence. Mm. The other family that that they were forced to marry and then they decide to separate, yeah. So it's not right or wrong. Mm. You decide to live together, or you decide to separate, or you know, or you decide to marry again, uh, following our tradition. It's not right or wrong, because we want to show that, yeah, this is the right of the human beings to choose people So choose who that they can live with. And also to show the resilience of each people. Yes, how people deal with this.
1: can break every
3: two hours.
1: That was Tim Manea of Kade Karuna, followed by the sound of a silk weaver using traditional methods in Siem Reap Province. Hearing about the work of Kadei Karuna really brought home the value of dialogue and discussion in emerging from and processing periods of violence and trauma. In many cases, the victims of Khmer Rouge brutality still live in the same towns and villages as their persecutors, with little or no discussion or reconciliation attempts facilitated by the authorities. With Kadei Karuna only able to reach so many communities, and with few other organizations working in this space, I wondered how many communities are yet to go through this process of reconciliation and how many still suffer in silence. Similarly, I was curious to find out the extent to which victims of forced marriage and sexual violence were able to speak out and reconcile their trauma, and how much the conversation around around the war crimes tribunal was influencing Cambodian youth today, as was hoped. Keen to explore these questions, and eager to hear from the voices and experiences of women, I got in touch with Catherine Harry, a young feminist vlogger who produces video blogs under the title A Dose of Cath. We met in a local cafe near the Independence Monument, and I began by asking her what kind of topics she covers in her vlog.
0: I do uh, gender equality, so basically I do a lot of um, culture and women. I've done sexual reproductive health, sex education, I have done um, rape culture, so all the typical feminist topics like that. Besides from NGO, there was no one talking about issues like this. And I understand because I have gotten a lot of backlash talking about issues like that. So it, it's only natural that no one would want to talk about it before I did because it's very it, it can be very disheartening to see all the backlash and negativity. We have a strong sense of culture. So a lot of people want to protect, want to preserve the culture. And they mistakenly think that when a woman speaks out about sex, or about gender equality, about rape culture. She's not being very Cambodian and because of that, people are against it. People have accused me of ruining my culture because of what I do. Um, And it's also because the topics are... And it's also because the topics are novel, they're different. I try to explain to them that culture changes. Culture is not static. Culture changes from one generation to another. And not every aspect of culture is to be practiced. Time has changed. And there are some things about culture that, um, that undermines gender equality that devalues women. For example, we have the women's code that I just talked about, not every part of the women's code is good. Actually, a lot of parts of the women's code really are. It, it devalues women, it oppresses women. So parts of culture like that we need to re-examine and we need to re-evaluate and we need to see whether or not it should still be put into practice, especially at this time of age. Basically, it's against uh, human rights, mm. but just because it's part of culture doesn't mean that it should, it should still be put into practice.
1: And you just mentioned the kind of the women's code. Is can you tell me a little bit more about that? Is that just is that something that's kind of codified and well known about?
0: It's basically a code that was written a few hundred years ago. It has been revised a few times, and it there are certain parts of it that really oppresses women. And I talked about all of that in just this one extensive video.
1: Chabapstre or the women's code is a long-form poem which lays out the expectations of how women should behave in Cambodian society. Popularised in the 19th century, but with some tracing the oral traditions behind the code as far back as the 14th century, the Chibap Srey has since been transcribed and was taught in full in schools until 2007, when an abridged version was introduced to the curriculum. The text includes statements such as, a woman's poor character results in others looking down upon her husband, Don't speak to your husband in a way that you consider him as an equal and that a woman should not turn her back to her husband in bed, otherwise she'll be considered a snake, bringing bad luck and causing the couple to separate. In 2014, a team of researchers in comparative education investigated the Jabaab in Siem Reap province. They found that between 93 and 97% of teachers and 76 to 79% of students agreed that the Jabab must be taught to all students, that the Jabab Sre represents Khmer culture and that good women are those who follow and respect the Chibbaps.
0: For example, there are parts that, in a way, it encourages domestic violence and it, it prevents women from talking about violence, from talking about conflicts to other people outside of the family. They talked about, in one specific passage, they said that you shouldn't bring inside fire to outside, and outside fire, inside, basically saying that if there's a conflict inside the family, you shouldn't talk about it to other people outside the family because it will shame or humiliate the husband and because of that it prevents women from talking about domestic violence to other people it it normalizes it in a way that if it happens inside the family then it's a family business so you shouldn't really talk about it and People say that, oh, it doesn't really matter anymore, it's a code that was written hundreds of years ago, people don't really care about it, but in actual practice, in society, we still unconsciously, we still abide by it because when a woman experiences domestic violence, people tend to not talk about it or try to tell the woman to reconcile with her husband because, you know, you don't want to break up a family. So things, little things like that that people unconsciously they follow, and they keep saying that it's they don't really care about it anymore, and the code is still being taught in school, even today.
1: You mentioned domestic violence. How big an issue is domestic violence in today's Cambodia? You think?
0: It's actually pretty big. Uh, according to a statistic that was published in the in uh, UN Women on the website, one in five women have experienced. Violence, uh, intimate partner violence, in terms of physical and or sexual violence. So one in five. That's That's a lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How do you think the uh, cultural phenomenon, if you like, of uh, saving face plays into these issues?
0: It's really. it perpetuates violence actually, and it normalizes it because it's not just domestic violence; it's uh, the rape culture as well. Because when a woman is raped or sexually assaulted, she sometimes she's not encouraged to talk about it, to report it to the police. Because if she talks about it, then she somehow loses her value because she has been raped. So her family would try to keep a close lid on that, try to reconcile it with the rapist, or sometimes they would tell her to marry the rapist because they don't want the, the, the problems to spill out to other people or they wouldn't want shame to the family so they would try to keep it hush-hush. We need to talk about that. We need to teach people that it's not normal for that to happen, that boys are just not boys. You know how to saying that boys will be boys. That's very toxic and that's very problematic. So we need to speak out about issues like that and tell people that this shouldn't happen, that women deserve to be respected and treated as human beings too. Because if no one talks about it, then the problems will go on and on. It's also they're important for Khmer women, uh, for Khmer men to get involved because obviously half of the population cannot change society alone. We need help. We need allies as well. Um, they need to speak up to their fellow men, to their brothers, that it's not okay to do this because the problem is that um, even if women try to fight it, some men, even though they don't actually sexually harass the women. Sometimes, most of the time, they would stay silent. They would say that, oh, they're just like that, what can I do about it? I'm not, I'm not participating in it, so I'm not, I'm not being part of the problem. But actually saying silent is being part of the problem, because in a way you're being complicit to the problem.
1: How, how does the um, plight of gender rights and equality differ in Cambodia to somewhere like America or the UK? You think?
0: In a way, um, gender equality, the feminist movement, is one step ahead in in Europe or in America. But at the same time, we do face similar problems. For example, access to birth control, access to safe abortion. You can see that's still being debated in America even in 2018. But of course, we don't have uh, problems. We have problems like women are not able to go out late at night without being shamed, without being gossiped by the... By the neighbors, we we can see that it's not really a problem in America, in Europe anymore, because sexual liberation has been is more advanced in the Western world. But it's not really a thing in Cambodia. Um, Sex education is more advanced in Europe. It's not so much advanced in America, and it's not advanced here. We're still not comprehensive sex education here in Cambodia. Those are the problems. Uh, for my vlog, the video that was talked about the most that was viewed the most would be about virginity. Mm-hmm. But then again, my latest video, which was about the women's code of conduct, is also being talked a lot. It talked about a lot, uh, and it was only released on Friday, but I see it everywhere. Uh, mm-hmm. oh, so many people have talked about it. I have received so many backlash about it. As well. So the accusations that people have thrown, uh, have thrown against me would be saying that I misinterpreted the women's code of conduct, saying that the women's code of conduct is part of culture and it's not all bad, mm. the saying that it doesn't, um, it doesn't legitimize uh, domestic violence. Some people have called me extreme. They say that I'm an extreme feminist. A friend of mine actually called me that. Um... What else? They, the general uh, insult, like saying I'm stupid or I'm crazy, mm. uh, people have said that I'm too radical and that I'm uh, undermining my culture. Mm.
1: Yeah. I don't know um, if you've been following so much, but the, the ECCC, the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, one of the sort of key um, innovations, if you like, of that um, court is to specifically treat uh, gender violence as a separate sort of topic um, mm-hmm. of investigation. Is that something that um, is filtering through to Kamai's society, do you think? Is that having any sort of impact on the conversation?
0: I don't know much about the trial because I haven't been following it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think um, conversations about gender-based violence has changed much. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's been affected by the tribunal because a lot of people here don't follow the tribunal, only uh, specific, only certain groups of people have been following it. I don't hear my friends talking about it, I don't hear people that I know talking about it.
1: That was actually going to be one of my questions, is as a young person in Cambodia today how relevant do you think the court is and um, especially things like Pekas which is the project that looks at um, Red Weddings and the impact of that um, brings in civil parties um, to kind of bring them into the dialogue discussion. How relevant do you think is to young people in Cambodia today?
0: Not very much. In a way, it's also because we didn't experience it, so we don't really take it as seriously as the older generation would. It's sort of like we're disconnected by the generation gap. and. Um, The older generation don't really like talking about their experience during the Khmer Rouge. I know my my parents don't really talk about it, but of course they didn't experience the Khmer Rouge much because they left the country. But I really don't know much about it from conversations or the lack of conversations about it.
1: Mm. How might we sort of start that process to engage youth in those kinds of discussions?
0: That's a really hard question Mm. because I've never really worked on uh, the Khmer Rouge before. Mm -hmm. I've never really talked to my friends about the Khmer Rouge Tribunal before. So I don't have any ideas at the moment.
1: Yeah. In the last election, um, there was a big um, 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 concentration of opposition and of, of kind of response to the government. Mm-hmm. It was built firstly around the Boncak mm-hmm. Lake activists, which were predominantly women, mm-hmm. and also around the garment sector, which was predominantly women as well. So um, I wonder, sort of, if you could reflect on uh, that phenomenon a little bit and it, where you see the next election going. If there will be pockets of women. Mm-hmm. Tri- taking leadership roles in the same way, or whether you think the next time will be different?
0: It's difficult because um, the atlas we're in 2018 right now is so much different from 2013. In 2013 we saw a lot of youth coming together uh, to try to make a difference in terms of the political scene. We were. It was fresh, it was young, it was the sort of social media, we were, in a way, kind of fearless. But in 2018, a lot has happened, a lot has happened to change our perspective to, in a way, try to break down our spirit. And it has worked in a lot of ways, so it's really difficult to see any um, major political movement to try to make a difference in 2018. For women in leadership positions, I hope that there will be more women in leadership positions, but I'm not really that optimistic because I can see the, the, what was it, commune chief, I think she was a commune chief in Bademba. She was actually in position and then she had to be, she had her position taken away when the CNRP was dissolved, so that was a huge step backwards.
1: Catherine Harry, producer and host of the video blog A Dose of Cat, followed by the Sounds of the Waves on Ko Rong Island. You can find links to Catherine's vlog, as well as all the other guests on today's show, by checking out the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Beyond where you can also subscribe to this podcast. Meeting Catherine left me with mixed emotions. On the one hand, it was fantastic to meet such an inspirational and resilient young woman leading the charge for gender equality and women's rights in the face of adversity and entrenched attitudes in Cambodia. On the other hand, I found the depth and extent of ingrained, outdated attitudes discouraging and depressing, though of course all too familiar, sadly. I was also interested to hear that in Catherine's sphere, the work of the court wasn't relevant to young people in Cambodia today. Could it be that the court and its initiatives were failing to connect with people in society or failing to extrapolate the relevance of a specific and bloody period in history to the ongoing struggle for female emancipation and equality today? I wanted to explore the relationship between court programs and society to a greater extent and managed to track down Chiam Sofilin, the founder and director of the Khmer Arts Academy, as well as being head of year at Sestra University, Sofalin was also a key architect of the Bukha Slaa initiative and one of Cambodia's foremost pr- practitioners in traditional Khmer dance. I began asking her how she began her career in the arts and what led her to contributing to the Bukha Sla project.
4: And so I started in the theatre and then I moved to the dance And in the dance, I started with male character because a Cambodian classical dance has four main characters male, female, giant, and monkey. And so I study as a male character but I didn't grow tall and so my teacher thinks that I should move to the female character and so okay I start in female character but at the same time I s- learn and perform many roles hmm. so male female giant character I do also perform and also sing because at the time my teacher did not have when they don't have live music then they have to sing and explain and demonstrate, and so to help my teacher, I learned how to sing with her, and I developed a singing ke, uh, um, talent. Uh, that was the time when after, you know, the camera was over, and then we started to revive our culture immediately. And I didn't know at the time why my teachers and my uncle, Cheng was doing that you know they are suffering they were suffering just like any other Cambodian they were separate from uh, our family they lost their family member They lost their house they get very little for their salary of their work why do they pay attention to the art you know why? why didn't they go to sell things in the market and make more money they didn't you know they they reopened the school of fine art. <laughs> you know what I mean? Why? So for them later on, I see now that I'm coming to that role, but I'm not in the same situation as they were. They, their situation was dangerous of losing our cultural identity, and that of course we can be. You know we can live here in Cambodia. But who are we without our culture? And as my teacher and my uncle, they are dancers and actors and uh, administrators in the art. They can't do anything else but focusing on rebuilding the performing art, And that is part of our culture as well. We could show to the rest of the world that we are alive and we are Cambodian.
1: Do you feel a sense of responsibility and uh, a weight to have to carry that to be one of the preeminent practitioners who is protecting and advancing that culture today?
4: Yeah, so I tell you that when my teacher was, Sotsam On, my teacher, she specialised in male and giant character. She was sick and she was brought to the Kalamat Hospital. And there, I went to visit her, and she was crying, calling out to the Lokta, which is the wise men who create the dance and took care of the dance. And she told, she asked him to not taking her away yet, let her live so that she could continue supervising, teaching the dance. She wanted to make sure that the dance survive so being cared care for and so sitting there and I but by the time I remember maybe by the time I my husband and I was uh, established our company in Bright Hall where my uncle's theater is so I was doing my work there and so I told my teacher on her hospital bed that I, at the time, I was calming her down, uh, and so I said, Ma Ong mean, my Ong mean mother as an aunt. So Ma om, uh, don't worry, stay calm. You should be calm, and so you could rest, and therefore you could recover faster. Don't worry. You know, I've been teaching the giant character to my students, so I'm caring for it now. So don't worry, just rest and recover. And so she calmed down, and I came back home later, and I realized that, oh my God, what did I do? And I thought I was just calming her down. but if she was gonna pass away that day, she count on me, carrying on her giant character, taking care of her giant character. You know what I mean? It was a mm. promise. It, it isn't just like calming her down, you know? And so I was like, oh, oh my God. So what? what would I do if I couldn't fulfill that promise, you know? So, Yes, going back to your question, it I, I don't think it is a burden on me, but it is a big responsibility as a one practitioner in the form, and that fortunately, I've been blessed with a talent that I could teach a new character, a male character, and a giant character, and that I can teach the classicals, uh, the old repertoire as well as like creating new one, new pieces like Pagasla. Mm.
1: Um, what is Pagasla?
4: Mm. Pagasla, uh, So Pukasla is a dance drama, experimental classical dance drama that address the themes of forced marriage under the Khmer Rouge. And uh, this dance drama is one of the component of the bigger project that calls Kasla Krom Anka. And Kasla Krom was um, approached by uh, Teresa De Lunga, uh, a professor uh, who had worked with um, TPO, the organization, um, in interviewing uh, a survivor, a, yeah, a couple uh, survivor of uh, forced marriage under the Khmer Rouge. And uh, they know, they had contact very closely with the uh, International Tribunal Court. Uh, to the uh, of the, uh, the Khmeru International Tribunal Court and so they very they know what's going on there and they uh, know that the case 002 slash 02 is now coming to the end recognizing that forced marriage under the Khmeru or any other kind of sexual violence against both, in this case, both men and women, particularly against women, consider as crime against humanity. And so with that, we come to the point where uh, they should have a, a reparation project to the survivor. And so they had call in, you know, they had contact with 150 or more survivor of forced marriage under the Khmer all over Cambodia. So. Teresa came to me and said, would I be interested in turning these transcriptions of the forced marriage under the Khmeru into a dance drama for a reparation project? I said, yes. And the reason I said so, because I think I'm a woman. I am a survivor of the Rouge as a child. I lost my dad. Uh, Chiem B, I lost my brother, uh, Jim Sapa and Jim Sapavon, two of them. I lost my grandmother, uh, um and my uncles and cousins and others. returned to Phnom Penh, my house that I grew up in was burned to the ground. The whole neighborhood was burned to the ground. And so I, of course, angry at the Khmeru for taking all my dad and brothers and my family and and my livelihood away. But I also, in the last, you know, before, uh, in the last 20 years, I was thinking about how much my mom had suffered. Because the Khmer Rouge had took away my dad and my brother, the house, the livelihood, everything that she was built, he, she built with my, my dad, just gone. except that, you know, fortunately, my sister and my sister, six sister and me, we all returned with all women in the family and my mom come back. And so yes, we have each other. But we survived in a very difficult time, you know. And so I jumped into the opportunity to develop, uh, to turn that transcription into the Cambodian experimental dance drama. Uh, And so the civil party, uh, so we asked them and say, can we ask them for the permission and say, if we can, can we, take your story from the, the, the transcription and turn it into a dance drama similar to this." A hundred percent say, yes, I would like you to do it. And when the, the, the civil party heard the text, the narration, and they said that, you know, Nakuru, you you say what I I meant to say but I couldn't think, mm. I couldn't, I don't know how to express it and now you express it for me. And so that was like, oh, a release for me, that I, it's a healing, you know, for me, but it's also a healing for them. And so that's, that piece I felt, every time I perform, I cry. Every time I perform, I was angry and I was very emotional. Mm. Um, But I feel, yeah, I feel I was here as well. So I'm glad I did that piece. Mm -hmm. And then, and then what? Uh, Every time we, after the performer, we have a Q&A, have have the audience ask the question. So ask question to us as a creator and performer, um, as well as to the survivor, the CP. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we learn that two of our dancers was children of forced marriage couple, and with, before that we work on that project, I didn't know that.
1: Wow. Yeah. How um, does exploring the red weddings? Um, how does that help us to kind of explore life. today and yeah. um, women's rights and gender equality today? Yeah. Looking at the past.
4: I know in Cambodian cultures that kun madai is very important. They said "Kon madai means the mother's uh, greatness, virtuosity is like a mountain, is as heavy as a mountain. So that's a give way to give respect to, mm. to the contribution of woman
1: mm.
4: to to somebody's life. But I recognize that when you look down look into the to the life of a man and of a woman, right? So we were born of sperm and egg. and we were care in the womb of a mother. And we came out through C-section. And most of the millions of people in the world is through that canal, right? To the vagina. No one dare to say that word, but it is very important. So, in the Concord time, you know, nobody is ashamed about that. You could see the, the Shiva Linga and the Uma Yoni, people worship that. Mm. We should celebrate this.
1: One phrase that kept coming up when I was researching this episode was the traditional Cambodian expression, men are like gold, women are like a white piece of cloth. Meaning that while the value of men cannot be tarnished, a woman can undermine her value through immoral behavior, in particular, by losing her virginity. The phrase has been picked up on and criticized by rights groups and even social enterprises out here in Cambodia. So I asked Chiam Sophalin what she thought about this traditional saying, and the culture that it propagates.
4: A woman like class, men like goal. I think that I think that that statement has to be re-examined, re, yes. re-examine, reinterpret and me, and maybe we could stop using it, you know what I mean? I think the, 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 another word that I would like to use is that that. Uh, that clean and stain, and we clean it again. Of course, once you stain, you clean it, and then there's the it's not the same as the freshly clean, right? Um, but that's what make life rich. And sometimes that stain that's underneath you can't look over, and that's when men and women. Separate, but sometimes you can look over that because the stain that we all go through make us stronger, make us more mature, and so I think that for men, to saying that goal is too extreme. You know, it's like untouched or or or. Uh, uh, It's a solid value. No, there's some husband who comes into a woman's life and destroys her life. She was beautiful, she got married and then she's become an old woman. She was, you know, tried to make a business to survive. He comes in and use her money to buy things, to buy you know, to be alcoholics and buy drugs and other things and destroy. You know, it's like a drain of her, her effort. Is that goal? You call that a goal? I don't think so. And there's a lot of men who, who, who get a woman pregnant and run away. Hmm. Is that goal? I don't think so.
1: That was Chiam Sofilin, founder and director of the Khmer Arts Association, followed by the sounds of a traditional Cambodian band performing in the Angor Thom Temple complex. An incredible and powerful story from Chiem Sofilin there. As well as demonstrating the power of the arts to stimulate dialogue and reconciliation of trauma, Sofilin's story passionately and persuasively lays bare the hypocrisy and double standards embodied in patriarchal societal structures. For women to have survived, returned, and rebuilt society to such an extent, after so much suffering, clearly belies traditional and outdated views on the strength and value of women in Khmer society. Yet even today, many women in Cambodia are still subjugated to the idea that they are somehow lesser than men, or have prescribed and preordained roles ascribed to them within the family, often seriously affecting their life chances and opportunities. I wanted to explore the political dimensions of gender and women's rights in Cambodia, and managed to get in touch with Mu Sokua, vice president of the country's main opposition party, the Cambodian National Rescue Party, which has been outlawed by the country's current government. Living in exile and banned from political life in the country for the next five years, I spoke to Mu Sokua while she was in neighboring Thailand, Speaking just a month before the country's recent general election, I began by asking her about her early political life and her experience of becoming Cambodia's first female minister for women.
3: Women have had to survive. Women in Cambodia are resilient because the men died during the war. The men also were targets of the Khmer Rouge because the men were more educated, there were more intellectuals among men than women. Having had to survive and reconstruct the family, support the family, women have had to uh, face economic ch- challenges, physical challenges, social challenges. Therefore, women are more resilient, more flexible and more open to change. I think it is why uh, when I returned to Cambodia in 1989, after 18 years in exile, it came to me as a natural thing to get involved in the reconstruction of the new nation, Cambodia. To enter politics at that time was unusual, but it was, on the other hand, uh, necessary. It was also the time when the United Nations that uh, were brought in to monitor and to um, sponsor their first election after the war, uh, brought in the concept of human rights, gender equality. So after all that, um, it was right for, for women to enter politics. And I did enter and won my seat as a member of parliament. And then... Um, was selected as the women's minister, the first woman to run the women's ministry, because the women's, women's ministry at the time was also included Veterans Affairs, so it's the Ministry for Women and, we- and Veterans Affairs, because they couldn't find, they said, they couldn't find a woman who was uh, qualified to run the, this combined ministry, the ministry was run by a man. So studying as a woman, uh, the first time to run the women's ministry, uh, my strategy was how to um, bring change without bringing too much, um, taking too much risk, so that it um, we don't confront the society, but at the same time bringing change so that women after the war can benefit from this women's ministry. Therefore, instead of um, pushing against society, I propose something to the society, which is um, to value men as well as we value women by changing a old proverb that says men are gold, women are just a white piece of cloth, to men are gold, and women are precious gems. Precious gems, we argued that women are precious gems because women are the human resources, and women have survived uh, during the war, after the war, women are the uh, bread, sole breadwinners in so many families. After the war, women represented over 60% of the whole population. Therefore, uh, by proposing a program to um, educate and to protect women so that women are better informed, better educated, to uh, uh, give value to the society, the uh, program was well accepted.
1: In today's Cambodia, what do you think needs to happen next to continue this process for women and for gender equality in Cambodia today?
3: Fundamentally, Cambodia has to go through political reforms, uh, starting with free and fair elections so that the people can choose the leaders that they want. And the leaders of Cambodia today especially the Prime Minister, has been Prime Minister for over 34 years. Today, Cambodia's democracy is dead. Today, Mr Hun Sen, who is a former Khmer Rouge, wants nothing but to maintain and to hang on to his power. You can see that over the 30 so years, Cambodia has moved forward. Uh, there are um, um, buildings, there are condos um, all over the city that are worth millions of dollars. However, the gap between the rich and the poor is so huge. Cambodia owns over $7 billion in debt to China. And the policy of Cambodia today, in terms of economic growth, um, the strategy is to uh, reach to the top. Start from the top first. Which is wrong? What Cambodia is giving in return to China are, are natural resources, the land of our farmers, hundreds of thousands of hectares of land, our minerals, our gold. Uh, Cambodia is, a, is a very rich in natural resources. But what the uh, policy of the government it is doing is break, Uh, making the gap between the urban and the rural the rich and the poor much much bigger so in all of this who suffers women because they are the least uh, informed because they are least they are the least educated and because opportunities for women um, have not um, expand to all sectors and the opportunities have been slow because of corruption because of a, an economy that is built at the top rather than the bottom. Who are at the bottom? The women who are our workers, even the sex workers, even um, women who are in civil servants, but they are mainly at the low level. Women who sell their little, their really meager goods in the in the markets. And these are the the core. They represent the core of the, our local economy. But it's, it's it is not um, given women a chance. Rather, it is um, up, all up at the top. And the government sector uh, is the worst because it employs over 700,000 uh, factory workers. 80 to 90% of these factory workers are women, and they are young women. They are women from the rural areas, the women who have left their farms because they cannot uh, farm anymore, because their farm land is given at, uh, economic concessions uh, to the big companies or the farm farmers their parents have not been able to pay uh, make Uh, payments for the loans that they uh, get from the micro-credit institutions. The situation is really, really hard. Um, Mm. So they move to the cities to uh, work as factory workers, making garments for the Chinese companies, for the South Korean companies, for the Japanese companies. Um, that are uh, uh, producing for the big brands like H&M, like Nike, like Puma, you name it, all these big brands are in Cambodia taking advantage of the uh, low wages. So in the, for the past 20 years already, and if this, the same government uh, continues to rule Cambodia, I don't see a break for Cambodian women. To the contrary, I see that Cambodian women uh, will be even less uh, be prepared for to compete with other skilled women in the region. So I don't see much um, uh, progress made for women unless there is a total change in the way Cambodia is governed. And in order to have a new form of governance, um,
1: we need to have new leadership. Um, I w- I'm really interested, you've brought up the garment sector, um, and obviously this is a, a sector that has, as you pointed out, a high concentration of women, particularly young women. Um, but some people argue that the garment sector is an example of success because uh, they're one of the only sectors that has a minimum wage. Um, and one of the only sectors that is unionised, unlike something like construction, for example, which obviously, which I think um, has less, has fewer women working in it as a sector. Some people say that the garment, work, garment factory workers, have a better deal. Um, so I wondered if you could comment on that.
3: I don't think it is a better deal. A better deal is when a worker, who works or a person who works for eight hours a day. Um, six or five days a week can make a living that is decent that allows her to um, bring uh, food to the table save money for their children her children to go to have a good education have health care have housing and have income that can uh, give them the luxury of buying extra food extra Household items, products that uh, can help them alleviate uh, their hard work, um, even have a day off. So, if you say, um, if you compare, you say, if we say that uh, the factory workers uh, have are better off, better off than what? If zero, if they are maybe from zero, a little bit over zero level. Um, yes, of course, better off than uh, construction workers or con- uh, p- women who are in the uh, sex industry, women who are in the um, uh, entertainment, entertainment industry. But the workers who are in the factories have paid a really, really uh, big price. And you know that. Um, that plight, the economic justice, the movement of workers, the struggle of workers, started then in 1995, when they had only, they could only make $45 a month, meaning, uh, and working more 10 to 12 hours a day. So compared to today, they they make $170, which is minimum wage, however, look at the fight, and and today, you, you see that uh, with the new law, the l- new labor law, there are more restric- restrictions on um, the uh, unions. Uh, they can't, it's almost impossible uh, to form a union unless you are um, a pro-government union. It looks and it sounds very uh, smooth and very uh, quiet at the front. Um, it is not so. The workers are still uh, complaining that they can't make ends meet with 170 dollars a month because they need to feed, to house, to raise four of the members of their family. How can you? live with 170, and that's why they, you know, over um, 2000, last year alone, there were thousands of workers who fainted. And why did they faint? Because they eat less, because they cannot afford nutritious meals, because they have to save in order to send money home. So it's not better, actually, if you have to save and you faint, you work till you faint and you save in order to bring money home, send money home, I don't think it's better. Especially if you compare this industry, which is solely uh, invested uh, by um, foreign investors who make uh, how many thousands of times more than the uh, cost of production. It is such an unjust, unfair um, situation. Is That's why I continue to fight for economic justice. That's why uh, it is so important not to make this type of comparison that the women uh, who work in the factories are better off. And you know, on top of that, uh, they are not considered as the, a gem, as gems. They are still compared as a white piece of cloth because there is a, a uh, social um, stereotype of a woman who is a factory worker. Uh, they are looked down on for having left the, the, uh, the home, the village. However, if they did not, if they stayed at home, the whole, they would, the family would be in so much debt, and on top of that, the economy that is worth seven billion dollars a year of export of garments would collapse. But the risk is social unrest. If there is more and more pressure, more and more oppression, where people can't speak, can't uh, protest, people are people, and especially. Especially if the situation, economic situation, is really at stake. If more suffering of the people at the local level is felt, then the unrest will come. (laughs) I you can't go the
2: town, but I'm to try to get i i try to
1: that was Mu Sekoua, Vice President of the Cambodian National Rescue Party, Cambodia's outlawed main opposition party, followed by the sound of a speech at a traditional Buddhist wedding in Siem Reap province. The frustration felt by Mu Sekoua in being locked out of politics is clear to hear, and her analysis of the structural exclusion of Cambodian women in the economy is also powerful. It's hard to argue with her gendered analysis on how the global garments trade takes advantage of and subjugates women in the developing world. As someone who has certainly bought clothes from major brands before, the wages mentioned and markups charged by these companies are astonishing and difficult to hear. Musa warnings of civil unrest have not yet been borne out. But in the end, and in the absence of a credible opposition to contest the July elections, more ballots were spoiled than were cast for any of the remaining opposition parties, whilst voter registration fell by more than 13%, the first time registrations have fallen since democratic elections were reintroduced to the country in 1993. At the 2018 general election, Cambodia became the only country in the world to have an elected legislature entirely comprised of representatives from only one party, making it a de facto one-party state. The government and the National Election Committee refute any criticisms of gerrymandering and claim that the election held was both free and fair. Musakua's story brings to light another aspect of the gendered nature of the violence under the Khmer Rouge regime, in that the patriarchal structures that had preceded the regime influenced the violence that occurred within it. Specifically, the fact that men had more frequently been educated or held positions of power before the Khmer Rouge then in turn influenced the targeting and patterns of persecution that the regime followed and the demographic profile of the population that survived it. Indeed, this phenomenon on the societal level was reflected in Chim Soffelin's story on the personal level. Yet, despite the role of women in rebuilding society and the crucial yet undervalued role they play in today's economy, Cambodia still seems some way away from a level of gender equality and women's rights that would emancipate and free women to take a larger and more equal role in Cambodian society. With gendered societal expectations, a dark and complex recent history, and a highly restricted modern political climate, the achievement of women's rights and gender equality in Cambodia feels like a fight that is still to be won. That's all we've got time for folks. Hope you've enjoyed this bumper second episode of Beyond Year Zero. Join me next time when I'll be exploring memory and memorialization of the country's genocide and how this has affected modern Cambodian society today. Until then, i some come to you hang.